Good morning, students, and welcome guests. My name is Marin Mohammed, and I have the pleasure of introducing to you Will Jones, the new Vice President for Institutional Advancement. He comes to Goshen College from Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, where he served as the director of the Berea Fund. Much like his current duties, Will worked to annually raise money for the fund, as well as provide strategic leadership to donor acquisition, alumni and friends programs, public relations, and development. Will earned his bachelor's in political science from Berea College and also studied at the Lexington Theological Seminary. After marrying his wife, Amy, Will began working in Washington, D.C. as the national coordinator and managing director for the Call to Renewal Project, which I'm sure he will elaborate on. Amy and Will have four children, Thomas and Grace, both three years of age, Annalise at four years, and Drew, who is one years old. Will's sister, Joni, also lives with the family and currently attends Goshen High School. As presidential student ambassador, I've had the pleasure of working with Will, and I find him to be approachable, caring, down-to-earth, and engaging, qualities I'm sure every student looks for in administrators. He's a perfect asset to Goshen College, and I hope you will join me in welcoming him. Good morning to you. Appreciate Nick uh, interpreting this morning. However, some of you may need an interpreter as well if I get off uh, a little too strongly in my accent. I apologize ahead of time. If you don't understand something, just catch me or one of the people I'm working with closely after this convo. Maybe they can fill you in. I'll also try to stick to time and get you students out a few minutes early. So hopefully that will keep you happy if I Again, lapse, and you can't understand what I'm saying. Australian Aborigines say that the big stories, the stories worth telling and retelling, the one in which you may find the meaning of your own life, are forever stalking the right teller, sniffing and tracking like predators, hunting their prey in the bush. And certainly a few of the stories that I want to tell you this morning, I feel as if, perhaps like our Lutheran brothers and sisters might say, that these stories found me more than I found them. But I hope uh, as well that you might enjoy some of the stories and a few of the pictures that I'm going to share with you. It's always a little uh, uneasy when you share pictures of yourself as a child, but I'm going to do some of that again so you can learn a little bit about Appalachia. That's me when I was in second grade. Yes, a walking advertisement for orthodontics. What I'm about to tell you isn't a joke, so don't laugh or you might hurt my feelings. But my mom got married when she was 13 years old, and she had me when she was 14. We lived in Kensee Holler, right on the border with Kentucky and Tennessee. Kensee, Kentucky, Tennessee, much like Michigan, I guess. The first house I can remember us living in was my papaw's coal shack. It was a place where he kept his coal in the wintertime to keep it dry, and it was very small. My dad and his brothers went out and emptied out the coal and put up cardboard for the walls. We didn't have running water in our house. Um, every week we would take about 50 milk jugs down to a local mountain stream and, and fill up those 50 jugs and carry them home for drinking water. Our bath water we would heat up on top of a coal stove in our little shack and had this huge sort of cast, not what cast iron, but aluminum tub 
that we'd feel to take our baths in. My mom and dad both dropped out of school in the eighth grade. My mom dropped out to get married, and my dad dropped out to work in the coal mines and try to make a little extra money for his family. It was this fact that my dad uh, dropped out of school that he was most frustrated in his life and um, was a very abusive alcoholic and um, would often attempt to kill himself either with guns or drink himself to death. I remember one occasion when he tried to drown himself in a river on purpose. These are uh, four of my uncles on my mom's side. Not the kind of guys that you Mennonites would play the Mennonite game with. I share this picture so you can learn a little bit about how far and how wide the drug and alcohol addiction goes. This is just my mom's side of the family. Two of her brothers aren't pictured here. My mamma Sophie had uh, children by four different men. She was a prostitute most of her life. This fella here was stabbed to death in a bar fight when I was a child. That's my uncle, Buddy. My uncle Robert was drunk and staggered out in front of a car and was killed the first uh, month of my freshman year in college. My uncle Butch here is an alcoholic today and this fellow here, my uncle Jay, he managed to escape and go work in a limestone quarry out in Missouri and as far as I know has, hasn't had a, a drinking problem. Life was uh, rough in the holler but there were also moments of joy, don't get me wrong. When I was in sixth grade I played uh, peewee football for Mr. Fox. You can see Mr. Fox there in the center. And Mr. Fox was what my mom and dad always called a decent man. Some of you have heard this story before. Many of you haven't. And I share it because it's worth telling again. I think it's one of those stories when you find meaning. Mr. Fox would condition us in the summertime in our football practice to what he, I think, referred to us as three and four feet tall killing machines. Again, not a Mennonite term, but one that we understood meant when it came time to play the game, we better be ready. And for two seasons, I played for Mr. Fox. This picture's from sixth grade. And every, every practice that we had, we could never hand the football off without fumbling it. We would try to kick the football, to go over our head backwards. Nothing seemed to work at all. But Mr. Fox was not concerned. He was what my dad called a decent man. And every day after practice, the kids on my team would stop off at a local country grocery store to buy a pot. It was sort of a rite of passage for the boys. We'd hang out with our dads and listen to them talk about politics or hunting or fishing or whatever was on their mind, work, the mines. Mr. Fox knew that my dad was out of work coal miner at that time, like a lot of the boys on my team. And so he would come up to us jingling change in our pockets every day, in his pockets every day. And he would share his burden. He called it his burden, all this change in his pockets with us so that we could buy a pop. Again, I couldn't afford a pop and all the other boys were buying one. And it could have been that Mr. Fox was attempting to unload his burden, but really, again, he was a decent man. And I think if I learned anything from Mr. Fox during that football season, it was that a person's worth isn't measured in pounds or ounces or in logarithms, but it's really how decent man or woman you are, how you invest in other people's lives. And it was probably at that time that I decided I want to be a Mr. Fox for sure. The interesting thing is that three years earlier in the third grade, my parents started telling me, you're going to be a college graduate. Now, why would two people who lived in a shack in Ken C. Holler, who both dropped out of school in the eighth grade, tell their son he was going to be a college graduate? God's grace and mercy, I think. 
My parents saw it as a way out of poverty. So when the time came, I was the first person in my family to go to high school, first person in my family to go to college. When I got to college, I got involved, and it really changed my life. This is when I ran for student government president, student association president. I'm not sure what the bottom means, vote for true leadership. <laughs> but the fellow I ran with was Yukti Gunasekar. He was a Sri Lankan. I would never have met someone from Sri Lanka had it not been for the fact I received a college scholarship to go to college, which made a way for me to be there, which also brought Yukti into my life. But Yukti and I ran for SGA president and vice president. It was a uh, really a great experience. We, had, we created the Jones-Gunasaker plan of action uh, that we we're going to implement across campus. I also had some fun. If I told you why we had duct tape rope and that cardboard there, Bill Bourne would get really mad at me. <laughs> That's Yukti on graduation day. And to tell you what kind of friendship Yukti and I had, here's that picture. He gave it to me on the back. He wrote, To Dear Will. I can hear him say it now. To Dear Vittle. He had this British accent. Tushan probably can relate, being from Sri Lanka. In appreciation of the good old days, wish you good luck, lots of effective planning, and hard work. Fondly, Yukti. It's interesting he would wish me effective planning, I think. Again, I got involved in SGA, the debate team, women's basketball, intramurals. I ran cross country and track. Habitat for Humanity, I was a Bria buddy and much more. If it hadn't been for college, I also wouldn't have made, uh, had an opportunity to get involved with work after college with Mountain Outreach. When I graduated from Berea, I went back home and started working with Cumberland College. The Mountain Outreach programs built more than 100 homes in Whitley County for families that basically were living in substandard housing. In addition to that, we created this clothing warehouse and every Christmas we had a Christmas giveaway where 800 families would come to get clothes and toys for their kids. And I, this was sort of the line that started about, I think it was probably about 5 a.m. one morning. It was raining. The line wraps around this road and down a holler. I also had an opportunity when I was working at uh, Cumberland College to speak at uh, several different national and state gatherings on volunteerism. And this is one where I shared the stage with Governor Paul Patton, which is interesting because uh, in high school I decided I was going to be the governor of Kentucky. And I also decided that when I graduated from college uh, in 98, I would run for state representative, serve three terms, and then run for governor. That was my plan. Pretty specific plan. Again, you understand why I have a friend like UT. Wishing you effective planning. So, I was sharing the stage with the governor, I was running for public office, and I actually won the Democratic nomination uh, two year, well, three years after I graduated from college, as you can see here in 98. I ran against a six-term incumbent in the, uh, run, the final election in November. He outspent me seven to one. A third candidate entered the race, so you can imagine all that's bad news. And I lost, not surprisingly but I also received 43% of the vote and almost beat the incumbent. And after that, I got lots of attention from the state and national party as an up-and-coming star in the party and received lots of uh, financial support for running for a second uh, time in the election. Well, it was an interesting time in my life, and I think it was one of those moments that I would share as a God moment. One of my uh, best friends from college decided that he would come and help me with my election, uh, Eric Waller. And I would call him the Reverend Eric Waller. 
Well, we hired Eric as a campaign uh, manager, and he was living in my house. We didn't pay him a whole lot. He couldn't afford a place of his own. And I expected it to be like the good old days in college when we'd have the duct tape and a rope and do all kinds of fun stuff, and I'd run for office, and, and we would win. Well, I was involved in my local church. I was teaching an Awana class with 35 and 6-year-olds every Wednesday night coming, and I knew all the Bible stories, but I really didn't have a, a relationship with God, a real meaningful person-to-person -person relationship. And every night I would see Eric sitting at our coffee table or at our dining room table reading his Bible, and I realized what I had used those tables for. I was getting a different kind of nourishment. And that moment, that God moment, changed my life forever. Because up until that time, the plan to run for state representative or to run for governor was my plan. It wasn't God's plan. I never prayed about that, about what I should do. So I decided um, that I was getting a call, and we talk about calling often, and I've heard Joe Lichty talk about calling and shared some stories. This was a calling in my life at that moment, calling me out of politics, that I wanted to take a step back and find out what God really wanted me to do with my life. So I held a press conference, and the press came and took pictures and was on TV saying that I felt like God was calling me out of politics. We well, can imagine the reaction to that. Uh, some people thought I was crazy. Uh, probably a lot of people did uh, for lots of reasons, and some folks were very discouraged, and some folks were encouraged. But for me, it was a time when I grew probably the most spiritually in my life. I met Amy Zimmerman at a church family camp in Maryland. Amy was working as a special ed teacher at an all-autistic school in Boston. She had lived there 10 years before she met me. I was living, again, Kinsey Holler, Kentucky, Boston, Massachusetts, which would be go park the car and go park the car. <laughs> so it was pretty interesting when we met one another. But I can tell you that, at least from my perspective, I knew then and there that she was the one. And six months later, we got married. I would not recommend that for anyone in the audience. Uh, all you young people listen to your mom and dad. I tell my three and four-year-old daughter they cannot get married until after they have a graduate degree. They don't understand what that means, but they say, okay. <laughs> That's Blue and Daisy. The reason why I included that picture, I always told Blue, he's the one laying down, that when I got married, I was going to get him a Daisy. So we got Daisy in our lives after Amy and I got married. It was shortly after Amy and I got married that we started to pray about what should we do as a married couple? What was God calling us to do? And we both realized that different times in our lives, separately, we had felt like Washington, D.C. was the place for us. So Amy, being a special ed teacher, sent off her resume to several different school districts and was snatched up and offered three or four different jobs at one time. Me, I served as the executive director of a couple different nonprofits in Appalachia. Again, I worked at uh, Mountain Outreach. I started the Food for Thought program. I worked uh, at a couple of places that no one, again, you're not shaking your head, oh yes, I know those places. Well, neither is anyone in Washington, D.C. But I sent my resume off with a lot of naivete, thinking at any moment I would be snatched up by some national nonprofit organization and offered many jobs. Well, I sent off many resumes without hearing a word until finally I got a call from Call to Renewal, which is a sister organization of Sojourners, which you may have heard of Sojourners. Well, I heard that I was one of eight or ten national finalists for a position there as executive director. And I went up for the interviews, and I met several, the, it was a room at the Hilton or somewhere, and there were several different heads of national denominations. 
That's Jim Wallace there on the left. He was there. He's the head of Sojourners and Call Renewal. Uh, Tony Campolo, Ron Sider, some other folks that if you haven't heard of, you probably will by the time you graduate from Goshen. And I interviewed and had a great interview. Uh, it went really well. And then I didn't hear anything for several weeks. And then finally I got a call one day that Jim Wallace was going to call me from his vacation in Florida. And I thought, this is the word. It's going to happen now. I'm going to get the job. Well, he called to tell me he really liked me. He thought I had a great uh, demeanor and we had a wonderful time together, but I didn't have enough experience and so I wasn't going to get the job, which was very disappointing because my wife Amy had just left maybe a week before to go prepare for her teaching gig in D.C. But again, we were convinced as we prayed that this was where we should go, Washington, D.C. Well, Amy was gone, and I was at home, and I was bumming, and went up to visit her one weekend, and we went to a church, and as we were going in, people were coming out. There was this thing where they have church first and then Sunday school, which was new to us, and we were trying to skip Sunday school and just go to church. Well, as we were walking in, this fellow handed me his card, and he said, if you get here and you're still looking for a job, let me know. And I said, okay, thanks. I looked at the card, and it said, chimney sweep. Mary Poppins chimney sweep, you know? Well, I stuck it in my pocket to be kind, but I thought to myself, I'm the executive director of several regional nonprofits. I'm not going to be a chimney sweep. Well, I went back home and was praying on my bed with my Bible and sitting there by myself. And Amy's in Washington, D.C., and I was praying, God, please give me a job. Please. I want to be with my wife. We haven't been married that long. And it's one of those moments when I clearly heard that voice in my head. I don't think it was audible, but I clearly heard God say, I already gave you a job. Call the guy. And I thought, <laughs> I'm not calling him. I don't want to be a chimney sweep. See, I come from a long line of coal miners. I'm the first person in my family not to work in a mine since we came to America. And I was not about to be in a position where I would come home with coal soot all over my face every day, dirty. At least that was what I thought. But the longer I prayed about it, the more that voice said, call the guy. You already got the job. So I went and called him. And I went to D.C. to work as a chimney sweep for a couple of months which was a great opportunity for me. It broke down a lot of pride that I had in my life and, uh, again, helped me to value the work that I did and, and taught me a lot about patience. And a couple of months after being there, Jim Wallace called again and said he wanted to have a conversation. And I went and talk, to talk with him, and I found out the person they hired as executive director left after two months, and they were looking for someone to do some work for them. And it was Jim's way of saying, I made a mistake, I think. <laughs> I want you to come work with us. But I went and started, and a couple weeks later, I was named a national coordinator and managing director of call to renewal. So literally, on a Friday, like Joseph, in some ways, I think, I was sweeping a chimney. And on Monday, I went to work, and after being there for a couple of hours, the White House called. They wanted Jim to come to some press op. He was gone somewhere. And we called Jim, and he said, send Will. So I went from sweeping chimneys to shaking the president's hand within about 72 hours. And depending on your politics, that was either a good or bad thing. <laughs> While we were in D.C., we had our first child, Grace Kimberly Jones. And again, she's with Daisy May in blue there. <laughs> True Appalachian, advancing stereotypes. <laughs> the guy with the hound dogs, yeah, Bassett's. And that's Amy and Grace. And we were all happy and doing well uh, with our little family. It was uh, one thing I will share with you, a couple of things I'll share today will be the first time that I'll share these publicly in a forum like this and maybe the last time for a couple of them. But um, we had to go to a fertility doctor and Amy had to have surgery for us to have Gracie. 
which um, was one of the reasons why we named her Grace, because it was God's grace that we were allowed to, to have her. That picture's taken in Kentucky. I worked in D.C. for several years, but right before I left, my dad died of an unintentional drug overdose. Well, during that time, my mom, again, who was married at 13, had me when she was 14, never worked outside of the home, um, never had a driver's license in her life, was in Kentucky uh, by herself. It was hard for us to go, but she encouraged us because she knew that we had prayed about this and this was God's calling in our life. Well, every day while I was gone for the last year, she would call me crying. She was depressed. She would not seek medical help or attention. She wouldn't take meds. Um, so it was difficult. So we made the decision to go back to Kentucky to help my mom and also a chance for us to be in small town America again. I worked at Berea College. On October 21st of 2004, Annalise and Thomas came into our lives. And this will be the part that I probably won't repeat again because they're getting older. That's Thomas. That's Annalise. Thomas and Annalise uh, have an interesting story. I think that they are destined to do amazing things in their lives. Annalise was conceived in prison. Her mom is my wife's first cousin. Her dad, she'll never know, Annalise's mom was on work release, uh, met a married man, she'll know his first name, and conceived Annalise. The first seven months, Annalise was in existence in her mom's womb. She was in prison. The reason why I tell you that is that is a miracle. Thank God for that. Because Tammy, her mom, is HIV positive. But because she was in prison, she was forced to take her meds which meant that her viral levels were so low, plus the baby's blood being separate for the most part, and Lisa's is not HIV positive, so thank God for that. A couple of months later, after she got out of prison, she met uh, Thomas White, who was a, a drug dealer and an armed robber, and Tammy being a drug addict and a prostitute, they were a perfect combination. Um, Thomas is named after his biological dad, Thomas. Uh, he, of course... Uh, is another miracle. It's interesting how God works through all kinds of people. Thomas's dad, again, a drug dealer and an armed robber, forced his prostitute drug addict wife to take her HIV medicine so Thomas would not be HIV positive. So the, to me, that's a miracle. And it's interesting how God works through all kinds of people. But on October 21, after having been abandoned at the babysitter's house um, nine months earlier and the family not being able to work it out and no one else taking them, we said that we would take Annalise and Thomas. It was really a wonderful opportunity for us, but it was also very scary. You know, I went back home to Kentucky. I took a, as we all, the great story, I took the pay cut, you know, to go back home to help my mom. We were living penny to penny, not dollar to dollar. And then someone asked us, can you take these two children? And we said yes. So after my mom's health uh, was under control, we got her to take her depression meds. Also got her into counseling. I felt like the spiritual stake was pulled up out of the ground. And I bookmarked on my web browser, um, probably about halfway through 2005, the Goshen College web HR website and the EMU HR website. The reason why I chose these two, while we were in Washington, D.C., my wife and I joined the Mennonite Church. It was also while I was in Washington, D.C., working at Sojourners and Call of Renewal that I ran across a Goshen College alum. Jody Byler was an intern in our office. And also, when we joined Capital Christian Fellowship, Chet Eshelman, Chet Miller Eshelman, a GC alum, was the associate pastor there. 
Those Goshen College connections are interesting for me because at, in between two and three, my dad came to Goshen, Indiana to work in one of the trailer uh, manufacturing facilities for six months because he couldn't find a job in the mines. So I always held on to those Goshen College connections, the, the church connection, and had hoped to get here. And to make a long story short, the vice president's position for institutional advancement came open and I applied and after, I'm sure, much deliberation, the school decided to take a chance on me and brought me here to serve as uh, VPIA. I offer these last few slides because what's a slide presentation without a few vacation photos from the summer? That's my son, Drew, who's one. That's my uncle, my mom's brother, who, again, I mentioned was not in the picture. I found him one night um, in his home, overdosed on Valiums and vodka, and took him to um, the hospital. And that's an interesting story I'll tell you sometime. But today he's in Birmingham, Alabama, working as a drug and alcohol counselor. That's Thomas today from this summer. Annalise and Gracie. I love that picture of Annalise. Yeah. <laughs> will attempt to talk. I'm the guy that cries at Charlotte's Web as an adult. <laughs> See where Grace is looking. Uh, Grace's life would not be complete without Annalise and Thomas. So obviously they have had their life changed forever, but we also have had our life changed forever by them joining our family. I want, lots of folks often ask, well, how do you put up with all the stuff that happened early in your life, with all those memories? And I go back to the scripture, uh, Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, commendable, excellent. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I think about things like this. And I also think about my dad. I love that picture of my dad. And for several reasons, because I think he is happy uh, with his grandchildren, the two sitting in front, my sister's children, and also my little sister, Joni, who lives with us. But I want to close by sharing a letter to you from my dad. It was from October 21, 94. And we, again, 10 years to the day before Annalise and Thomas came to live with us. It's one of the only letters my dad ever wrote to me. And it says, um, William, thought I'd write to tell you that we had the phone disconnected because of financial crunch. But you can write if you have time. Or if you need anything, you let me know and I'll get it some, somehow, some way. Things will get better. Trish, that's my sister, her children are there, wrote this week. She said she hadn't saw or heard from you since you all were down here. William, I love you and worry about you. You are my only son. I want you to keep your mind straight. Keep it on your studies. Be obligated. I received this when I was in college, my senior year. Again, from a man who dropped out of school in the eighth grade and got his GED and considered himself to have a ninth grade education. It's only seven more months, and the things you do today will affect you the rest of your life. Make the most of it. Stay out of trouble. The wrong people can get you in trouble whether you're guilty or not. And this line is for all of you who are the first folks in your family to go to college or even for those of us 
who are here teaching are not the first in our family to go to college. You are privileged. Not everybody gets to go to college, and a lot don't get accepted. I completed the eighth grade. I wanted to go to school. If I would have got to go to college, I believe that I could have had it better and would probably be healthy today. Please don't ever get involved in alcohol or drugs. It's a total waste. I don't mean to lecture. It's just that I love you and care. I hope to live long enough to see your dreams and happiness come true. Reality sometimes is harsh. If you, love, if you work hard and serve the Lord, all things are possible. Don't despair. Take one day off just for yourself. It's interesting you put that in there, all caps. Look at the flowers, the trees, the grass, the leaves, the insects, the sky above, the people. Smile, thank God that you're alive. Slow down. Always treat people with respect and take time to listen to them. It may not seem important to you, but if you show you're interested, it might be very important to them. A little compassion can change people's lives. We have all got to live together in this ever-shrinking world. I never met a man that was better than me, nor me him. Mom and Joni are asleep. They both love you and miss you. The weather sure has been nice. I love autumn. The trees are beautiful. If you need any money, ask your sister and I'll pay her back. <laughs> I'll close for now. Be careful, love, Dad. We're all privileged. We're all blessed to be college graduates or to study at a college or to help support students who do this work. So, again, I thank you for listening to my story this morning. I want to share an announcement before you leave. So if you could just put all that away for a second. have an important announcement before you leave. On behalf of President Brenneman and other members of the President's Council, I want to invite you to attend a special campus gathering this Wednesday, October 25th. Put it in your notebooks, all you faculty, staff, and students, from 10 to 10.30 here in the church chapel. You will want to be a part of this historic announcement and campus gathering. Thank you. Thank you for listening.